Hey, uh, turn to John chapter 4. Uh, if you weren't with us last week, we started this story, so we get a little bit of previously on the Gospel of John with Jesus at the woman at the well. We're going to... Um, we're going to pick back up and read a little bit more. So uh, last week we talked about Jesus meeting this woman at the well, this woman that he should not be talking to by every societal standard that is happening. She really has three pretty big strikes against her to be able to have a meeting with the Messiah. She doesn't even know she's meeting with the Messiah. She's just coming to the well, avoiding the crowds, coming at noon because of her reputation to get some water, and she meets the Messiah. And she is a woman, first of all, Men and women, particularly religious leaders, not going to talk to women out in the, the public eye in this culture. So that's one reason. She's a Samaritan. There's tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. They're not going to deal with each other if they can avoid it. And then lastly, she is a woman of moral um, disrepute, and she has a reputation. And so for all those reasons, she's not somebody who would typically have a conversation with Jesus. And Jesus doesn't just avoid her, which would have been totally common uh, and just kind of pretend she doesn't exist. He engages her. He pursues her. He has a conversation with her, a conversation that will lead to the total transformation of her life. And so it's easy to cheer that Jesus, right? It's easy to say, yeah, that Jesus is breaking down, uh, you know, societal barriers, and that Jesus is, you know, he, he's, he's coming against the, the sexism of the day, the racism of the day, all of those things. Um, and, and, and this is true. And you can get there and say, see, Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. So why should you, right? And, and so some people are really on this train of like, hey, we should just be, you know, loving and, and, and that kind of deal. And they want to champion this text. But here's the deal. Yes, Jesus didn't condemn the world. But, and it said that in John 3, 17. But if you keep reading, the reason he didn't condemn the world is because the world was already condemned. If you just read one more verse, it would have told you that. Um, and so, he, so yes, there is condemnation. And that condemnation must be dealt with. We can't pretend that it doesn't exist. So what do we do? How do we love people that are far from God, that are in a, in, a, in a rough place in their life, that don't fit our comfortable, you know, standards or maybe our more palatable sins that we're, from, that we're comfortable with, that we've made peace with, but society has drawn these. How do we love these people, right? And this is where people will kind of get pulled into one of two options, right? So there's a, there's a, there's a crowd that's really in on religion, really in on truth, and they will say, listen, you got to call it out, man. She's a sinner, Jesus knows everything about her. He's got to call it. You got to call it out. You got to let her know. Hey, you can't keep running from marriage to marriage, thinking they're like you, you got to call it out. You got to you got to repent. You can't serve these people. You can't love these people. You can't be near these people. They might think you're approving their lifestyle. So stand back. Don't get too close and call them out. Or there's the other side where people say, "Man, we just like don't do all that calling out. Just love people." Why you gotta be? Why you gotta be so confrontational? Why you gotta be? Like, we don't need to get in all that sin stuff. Like, Jesus, Jesus love. God is love. Like, just, just love people. God loves everyone, right? And then in steps Jesus into a world that is divided by clean and unclean, by religiously pious and hopelessly sinful. And John says that he steps in full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth is what John tells us in John 1.14. And we've looked at that. But this is a story that is one of the most profound and beautiful examples of that on display. So let's read it again. A good portion of it at least. John chapter 4. We're going to pick up in verse 7. They're at the well. 
this conversation is going to go. And, and I want you to look. I want you to listen. Look and listen for signs of grace and truth. So verse 7, chapter 4 of John. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Hey, give me, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me? A Sam- <clears throat> A woman of Samaria. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, then you would have asked him, and he would have and he would <clears throat> and he and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you, you don't have anything to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where are you going to get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to every Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give to him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water that I don't have to be thirsty and come back here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, sir, I I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying you have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one that you, are, that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in the Jerusalem will you worship the Father you worship what you do not know, we worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He was called Christ, and when he gets here, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, am he. This is the word of the Lord. You guys are getting it. Let's pray. Jesus, Father God, we thank you that we can come and pray in the name of Jesus, and we ask that your spirit would come and now uh, enlighten us to the beauties, the glories, and the, the amazing truths that are in your word. May they speak deeply, as you said, your word is like sharper than any two-edged sword, cutting bone and marrow, dividing mo- like motive and 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 self-protection, all those things, Lord, we pray that you would unleash your word through your spirit here in our midst. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Now, we know that Jesus knows what's in a man. We, we got that set up before he had a conversation with Nicodemus, which was really a setup for both the conversation with Nicodemus and the woman at the well. Okay, so right before chapter 3 started, uh, it ended, chapter 2 ended with saying, Jesus knew, knows what is in a man, right? So that, that informs how he engages. So we say this story of Nicodemus, he shows us no one's so good, so religious, so good morally that they have no need of a savior. Jesus says, Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. Now we have this woman who has a reputation, who has a, a rough story. And she's going, like through this, John is going to show us that no one is so bad that they have no hope of a Savior. So, so John sets up both of these stories to go together by saying that Jesus knows what's in a man. So he knows what's in her. He knows her story. Why not just 
Call it out. She's there at the well, there at noon, obviously broken, obviously suffering. Why doesn't Jesus just go, hey, you know what, lady? Maybe your life wouldn't suck so much if you would, you know, stop jumping into marriage after marriage after marriage, thinking that a man's going to, you know, make you happy. Why don't you repent and become a good person? The rest of us are doing it. Get it together, lady. Right? Like, he knows what's going on. Why doesn't he do that? Now, spoiler alert, he is going to confront our sin. But let's look at where he starts. Let's look at how he approaches this with grace and truth. Not intention with one another. Not a push-pull of grace here, truth there. But fully in concert, working together to display the beauty, and the character of our God. Let's look at where does he start instead. He asked her for a drink. He knows her story already, but he asked her for a drink. He dignifies her. He starts a conversation. And, and when she says, uh, you know, I don't know why you're talking to me. We shouldn't even be talking. And he goes, hey, listen, verse 10. If you knew who was talking to you, then you would be asking for me to give you a drink. Because if you knew the gift of God, if you knew what God could offer, if you could see beyond the religious stuff that is so hotly debated and the rituals and the things, if you knew the gift of God. So if you're here and you think you know about Christianity and you think you know what it is to be a good Christian moral person, you, you pray to prayer at some point, you come to church when you can, you do, like, you, okay, I know what it means to be a Christian, maybe I can work on that, maybe that's why you're here, to move toward that. Jesus says, listen, if you knew the gift of God, you would be coming in here saying, give me what I'm longing for. Jesus, only you can satisfy this longing within me. If we knew that it's so much better than religion and rules and, and processes, if we knew, then we'd be running to him. But she doesn't know. He doesn't condemn her for that either, though. The woman says, okay, um, I don't know what you mean, but uh, you don't even have something to draw water with, dude. Like, I don't know what you're offering me. You don't have anything to, to draw water with. This well's really deep. Are you telling me you got some other well, right? She's like, are you, are you greater than our father Jacob? Verse 11. He gave us this well, drank from himself, fed his lives, or, you know, gave his livestock water from it. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Okay, so what is he doing? What, Jesus is starting with this woman by seeing the brokenness behind her behavior. Jesus is starting by seeing, acknowledging, and engaging the need behind the behavior. Now, a lot of us aren't comfortable with this, but this is where Jesus takes her. He says, hey, like he starts this whole thing. This whole thing started because he's thirsty. The Son of God, fully God, fully man. He's, he's thirsty. He literally he needs a drink. He's tired from his journey, and he wants a drink. He's and she obviously needs water. That's why she's come. So he takes this, this mutual connection, this natural, physical thing that you have a thirst. And guess what? You drink some water, and, and a little while later, you need more water, right? Your body continually has this thirst that brings us back to this need. And he's saying, hey, 
you know how you got this thirst going on? You've actually got a deeper need. You've actually got a deeper thirst within you. And if you understood what God was really offering, you would understand that I can meet that need. Because just like you are brought back to the well to get some physical water to to quench your physical thirst, you have a spiritual, holistic thirst in your soul. And it is driving us to drink and to get satisfied somewhere. And she's been a poor steward of that thirst. And instead of taking it to God, she, like so many in the Old Testament, so many humans, uh, every human before her, is taking it to other things. Jeremiah chapter 2, he talks about, like, this is the evil that, that, God, that God's people have committed. That, that they've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves. But they're broken. And they can hold no water. You want to know, like, the biggest grievance God has against us as his people? It's that we've forsaken him. We've walked away from the very source of life. And we've gone and tried to get water to satisfy our souls out of other wells. And he says, they're broken. They'll never hold water. They'll never satisfy you. So, here at The Journey, we talk a lot about how I mean, we're not called to just like sin management or behavior modification. Right? We're called to transformation. We want to be transformed, not just moralized. We want to, we want to seek transformation, not just moralization. And, and so Jesus, you see, he's not content to just get us some forgiveness, give us a high five, and see us in heaven. He's coming for more. Part of the salvation and the goodness of eternal life that he's offering to us is that he sees the brokenness behind our behavior. See, we're familiar with the cost of our behavior, of our sin. When we sin, this is the cost. We are eternally damned, we are, we are doomed, we are broken, and we deserve hell, right? We, we talk about that a lot, and rightly so. Jesus doesn't just want to forgive and clean our ledger so that we're no longer on our way to hell. He actually wants to address the the brokenness, the need that has led us to those sins and to those behaviors. So, I want you to think a little bit differently. Last week, we looked at how other people were looking at this woman. Remember, she's at the well in the middle of the day. No one goes to the well in the middle of the day. It's really hot. Every woman from the town would have been to that well to get water. They all needed it that day. But guess what? They came early before the sun was up high in the the sky, beating down on them, causing it to be miserable. And they came in groups, and there was some socialization that happened. She's there in the middle of the day. And and last week we looked at, okay, that's how other people are seeing her. And they they don't want to be associated. They don't want to be bothered with her. They want to keep their distance from her. She's got a messy life. Today, I want you to think a little bit about how does she see her. I want you to think a little bit about what's going on inside of her. I want you to think about what leads someone to have had a life like hers. Now, to be clear, we don't know why she's had five husbands. We don't know if they all died. 
If that's true, then it makes a little bit of sense why the sixth guy is not marrying her. Right? He ain't signing up for that. But we don't know that. Right? We don't know. It's more likely that she has a perpetual cycle of sexual brokenness and just marriage struggle. She's got, so listen, that's, that's a rough story. How do you think she feels about herself? You don't think she ever wanted to change her story? You don't think she wishes she had a different story? You don't think she wishes her story would be different from here on out? You don't think she actually sees herself herself way worse than the community sees her? Some of you know what I'm talking about. You have a lower self-view of yourself, lower view of yourself than anybody outside could ever say. You want to make sure that everybody knows you don't think too much of yourself. That way, if they were to ever say what they think of you, it can't really hurt that bad because, yeah, I know. I know I'm, I'm, I know I'm a mess. I know I'm pitiful. I know I'm terrible. I know, like, fill in the blank. I want you to consider with me a, a few like, things that we, we often observe in our community, but we don't realize. Sometimes we just see the behaviors. We just see the sin, and we don't think about the story that has led to a life that manifests itself with those behaviors and with those sins. Did you know that according to lots of institutions, but I pulled from the Gateway Foundation, that over two-thirds of people who struggle with substance abuse and addiction have some form of childhood trauma, physical or sexual abuse. Over two-thirds. So, get them sober, dry them out, get them sober, give them some steps, give them some resources, Why can't they do better? Why can't they keep from doing that? Why can't they keep from going back to that drug? Why do they keep messing up their life? Why? Why can't you? And we start to be condescending. We start to be frustrating. We start to, we get, we get run out on our patients. When in reality, very few programs are doing the deep work to actually address the root need, the brokenness that has driven them to that behavior. And without that sort of holistic healing, It is very rare, very rare, that we see life set free from addiction for a long time. Perhaps you've heard of uh, the ACE study, Adverse Childhood Experiences. If you're in a school district, or it's kind of like trauma-informed stuff is kind of buzzing right now, and I don't mean to get into all that validity. I I just simply want to uh, talk to you about the origins of that whole deal. There was a a physician that was overseeing a a weight loss clinic and and had... um, one woman in particular that had come through and had lost hundreds of pounds through the program. And it kept it off, I think, for a couple years. And, and then all of a sudden gained it all back pretty quickly. Um, and when he was doing his intake questions with her, um, he, he asked the questions that he always asked, but he actually slipped up and asked one of them wrongly. 
And he's usually asking, how much did you weigh when this happened? How much did you weigh when this happened? And, but he, he's actually about to ask, how old were you when you first became, um, when, you, when you first were, were, had a sexual activity? But instead he said, how much did you weigh when? And she said, 40 pounds. And he said, I'm sorry, I, I think you heard me wrong. I, I apologize, I misspoke. But then he, something told him to ask it again the same way. And he did. And she said, yeah, 40 pounds, I was four. It was my father. And he began to wonder. Could, I wonder if, if her story is an anomaly or if it's more common. So he started to ask more questions like that in his intake process. And he had another woman, similar, who kept the weight off for quite a while, huge success story, and all of a sudden was putting it back on rapidly. She came in to see him, and he said, what do you think's going on? She said, I think I'm sleep eating. He's like, okay, what do you mean? She says, I go to bed, the counter's clean, I wake up, I've cooked, I've eaten, there's no one else in the house, it must be me. He says, well, okay, why do you think, and I think he backed up and asked her the questions, I, I'm not sure, but he said, why do you think you're doing that now? Like, what do you think has prompted that all of a sudden after years of doing well? And after a few prompts, she finally said, well, there's this, there's this man at work. I think she worked in a nursing home. This older man that's married, and he's making advances at me. Subconsciously, her body is saying, I could protect myself by being non-desirable if I gain weight. There's a need driving that behavior. We see it with kiddos from hard places all the time. Sometimes it's as simple as a food insecurity. They grew up not having enough food. And, and guess what? It comes to dinner time. They start, like, the hour and a half before dinner time is terrible. They're throwing fits. It's, a, it's an awful deal. My wife coaches families through this. Part, part of the time, it's a simple solution of either hey, maybe give them a snack like two hours before dinner to hold them over. Or one family, it was, hey, could you just do dinner 30 minutes earlier? And guess what? No more tantrums. No more meltdowns at that time of day. There was a need driving that behavior. This is true in different layers, in different ways, with more nuance, all over the place. There's a brokenness within us that drives us to go to certain wells. I could tell you more stories, but I won't. Jesus sees that. Again, we don't know this woman's story in full, but we know that she has taken her thirst to love with a man, hoping that there she will find happiness. And this is where the goodness of God comes out in Isaiah 55, saying, hey, why are you trying to buy water? and buy bread when you can't it can't fill you up why are you going there Let, let's put that up let's just reflect on that this is an old testament invitation this is the heart sometimes we just see god's wrath and as people are breaking his laws and he's just coming down on this is the heart of our god on isaiah 55 come all, everybody who's thirsty come to the waters you got no money that's okay come by and eat come buy wine and milk this is this, this is the 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 sign of prosperity wine milk honey uh, those things come buy it without money without price 
Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love that I made with David, I'll make it with you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. The unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. That's how he'll respond when we come back to him. Compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. You see, we're going to get to the woman has misplaced her thirst, and it has led to consequences, and those will be called out. But right now, I want you to see that Jesus sees the brokenness behind the behavior, and he's coming for them. See, to merely forgive our sins would be unimaginably merciful and gracious. You understand that, right? If all he does is forgive our sins, then we should worship him for eternity without ceasing because that's incredible. You understand that? He, we owe, he owes us nothing, and yet he's willing, like he forgives our sins through Jesus' death on the cross. It's amazing. But Consider for a moment what that's like to just be forgiven. And the root, the need, the pain, the brokenness that's driving those behaviors hasn't been healed. A good father isn't content with that. Jesus loves us better than that. We didn't even deserve that, but he loves us better than that. He sees the need, and he's leading us to see it too. He's leading this woman to see it too. He's saying, hey, You've been to this well before, and you'll have to come back. Because everyone who drinks of this water, they will thirst again. But what I'm offering you, listen to this. The water that I will give him, verse 14, they'll never be thirsty again. The water that I will give will become in him a wellspring of eternal life. It's incredible. Jesus wants to meet the need behind. We're going to end. We're going to come back to that. But he wants to, he sees and he wants to meet the need, heal the brokenness that's driving the behavior. But it's interesting. Verse 15, how does she respond? She goes, I'm in. Give me this water. Sounds great. Sign me up. I'm on team, whatever your name is. Prophet guy, this is awesome. Now, why doesn't Jesus just like, Sign her up, take her to the baptistry, put her on the church roll, count it a win, right? She's in, got it, she's ready. Listen to how he responds. Go call your husband. But Jesus, why you got to be like that? She's ready, man, like she's ready to join a church. You're going to go and... Call that out? What in the world? Jesus says, go call your husband. Jesus sees the brokenness behind our sin. But he also calls out our sin specifically. He calls out our sin specifically. Why? Because he's not content to just forgive, but he wants to heal. And he has to heal by taking us through that wound, by taking us into that place that is driving our sin. So he calls out our sin specifically. Now, there are so many church people today that are they're, they're stuck right here. They're hiding in plain sight, not experiencing eternal life, 
not experiencing that wellspring of life coming up to joy and to eternal life. Why? Because their sin is still dominating because they've never actually confessed it specifically. They've never actually brought their sin into the light and sought the healing for the brokenness that drove them there. So many Christians are stuck right there. They've made a general confession of sin. Of course, I'm a sinner. Of course, I need a Savior. And they've come and professed Jesus as that Savior, but they've never gone any deeper. They've never gone any further. They've never named their own sin. And Jesus is saying to this woman, yeah, you can have this water. You can have salvation. But you can't have salvation and keep your sin, too. You can't have salvation and keep your sin, too. You can't hold on to what has made you secure. can't hold on to what you love and say, let me add some Jesus into this mix. So he says, okay, but I'm going to need that sin from you. So he exposes it by saying, go call your husband. See, Jesus is letting her know that she has misunderstood the true dimensions of her own need, that the, the real nature of her thirst is deeper, and she's taken it to the wrong place, and that has very real consequences. Here's the deal. So does your sin. Your sin has very real consequences. Yes, he's a God of love. He will forgive sins. Absolutely, all of that is true. But your sin has very real consequences, and it has to be dealt with. Remember, he didn't come to condemn the world because the world was already condemned. That condemnation has to be dealt with. First consequence of your sin is your relationship with God. Your sin has cost you a relationship with God. The, the, the source of living water, the very thing that's supposed to give us life, your sin has cost you that relationship. It must be dealt with. It has to be dealt with. To not deal with it, it will, will keep you at a distance. It's, it's saying, okay, Jesus, but, but this far only. I'll take your ticket out of hell, and I'll admit that I needed it, but don't get any closer. That's like saying to a doctor, all right, all right, I need it. I need your pills. I need, some, I need some pain management. But you're not operating. You're not giving me chemo. I don't want to go there. Just mask it. Just, can we just pretend it's not? Can we just not talk about this? Your sin has cost you a relationship with God. So therefore, Jesus has come to reconcile us to God. So our sin must be dealt with. Secondly, our sin has has cost us our relationship with others. This is why our, our relationships are a mess. Because of sin. Because of a misplaced thirst, a misplaced longing, thinking that people can give us something that only God can give us. For some of you, that is like this woman. You, you look to a spouse, a, a person, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, young people, thinking this is what I need. If I just had this, I'll be happy. I'll be cool. People will think this of me. If people just think that I'm cool, then I'll be content. If people just whatever, right? We place our question of does life have value? Do I have value in others? And when we do that, it inevitably leads to broken relationships because guess what? Others can't 
satisfy you. The approval of others, the love of others, the affection of others, the physical touch of others, they're broken wells. You might get a little water out of them, but they can't hold and sustain your identity. They can't hold and sustain your life. So our sin has to be dealt with. So Jesus looks at this woman who's saying, yeah, I want salvation. I want that. And he says, okay, we got to deal with this. I wonder if you were at that well with Jesus, what's he calling out in you? What's he telling you to go get? What's he telling you to uncover? Is it your internet history? Is it that relationship at work that your spouse doesn't know about? It's not physical. It's not appropriate, though. Is it the overdependence on a substance? Is it gambling? Maybe you're throwing your money away at those gaming machines. Is it your credit card debt? Is it just the ledger of conversations with your spouse that nobody knows about? Because you guys act like everything's great when you're out in public. You see, Jesus knows what's in you, whether anybody else does or not. He's just bold enough to call it out. It's incredible. But how does he heal? What does he do within her that leads to transformation? Because She's going to leave. We didn't read it today, but she's going to leave and go into town and start. The, the woman who was hidden from everybody, didn't want to associate with anybody, runs back into town to tell everybody about Jesus. What changes in her? Because he doesn't give her a really nice husband and a life that will no longer cause her any problems, does he? You think, okay, this is her need. This is her brokenness. Maybe he just like whipped her up a nice husband, bachelor style, and like, here you go, woman. You'll be good now. No, she, her life is still circumstantially just as messed up as it was. But something shifts in her so dramatically that her life is forever changed. What is that? Let's look. Now, we're going to answer the question that she asked. Because she's going to take a bit of a detour. Verse 19. The woman, she, so right after Jesus goes, yeah, yeah, you're right. You ain't got a husband. You've had five. One you're with now, not your husband. She goes, I perceive that you're a prophet. She's a sharp one, right? Like, no duh, I just got my whole mail read to me. Yep, this guy, there's something to this guy, right? And so she goes, I perceive that you're a prophet. Yep. So she's going to ask him a question. She's going to ask him a theological question. Yes, I think she's diverting attention. Yes, I think there's some evasive, you know, but, but there's more to that. And so I want you to know, we'll come back and answer this question next week. We're going to dive deep into what is this truth and worship and worship in spirit and truth. We're going to come back to that. 
But here's what she says. She, she says, okay, I see your prophet. Let, let, let me ask you this question. Let's just fast forward, though. And see, her response to Jesus' answer in verse 25. The woman said to him, okay, so he gives his answer, and she's like, all right, fair enough, because the Samaritans and the Jews, they've got different ideas about worship and all that. And she goes, okay, um, maybe you're right, but here's what I know. One day the Messiah's coming, he'll sort it all out. Right? So she's like, all right, cool. Clearly you've got some kind of prophetic power. You just read my mail. Good answer. We'll wait and see what, what, the, what Christ says when he comes. And this is it. This is the moment. Jesus says, yeah, that's me. She, verse 28, leaves her water jar. She came for water, y'all. At this moment, she no longer cares about her water. She leaves her water jar, went away into town, and said to the people, Come see a man that told me all I ever did. Could this be, can this be the Christ? What in the world? Like, Jesus says, yeah, you're right. He's coming one day, and you're right. He'll sort it all out. And in fact, that day is today, and that's kind of me. Like, I don't know how that went down. I don't know what his face was like. Like, I want to know, right? Like, I want to know. He's just like, uh-huh, uh-huh. Surprise. I don't know how that went down, but it's awesome. It is an awesome exchange. And here's how he heals her, and it's how he heals all of us. Jesus reveals his glory, and in turn, it heals our story. Jesus reveals his glory in order to heal our story. It's amazing. It's amazing what he does. And here's what I want you to track with me. That realization for her, oh my goodness. And in that moment, it is a transformation. It is scales falling off of her eyes. It is a conversion moment where she is born again and she sees him for who he really is. But, but I think you've got to go a little bit deeper. I think you've got to reverse. I think you've got to get into her thoughts, into her identity, and think now that she realizes who is speaking to her, let's kind of rewind the tape, if you will, and go, oh, my goodness. If this is the Savior, if this is the Messiah, did he really just talk to me? Nobody talks to me. If this is the Messiah, did he really not pull away from my filth? Because everybody else pulls away from my filth. If, if he's the Messiah, did he just offer me salvation? I... Everybody knows I'm a mess. Everybody knows how far I am from religious earning. Like, this is the Messiah. And he sees me. And he's talking to me. 
He's not running away from me, but instead he's saying that he can heal me, that he can give me something that will quench this longing that has led me to break my life with husband after husband after husband. He's saying, I I can be healed, and, and this is what leads her to go, oh my goodness, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Oh my goodness, saved a wretch like me? You see, it is this realization of who he is and then seeing how he treats her, what he's offering her that leads to the transformation of her. See, Jesus says, hey, you'll never be thirsty again. Right? Does this mean that we'll always have smiles on our faces, that we'll never sin again? No, but it it means that that what your heart is longing for, searching for, when you sin, when you sin, you're looking for something, and it can only be found in Jesus. And he's saying to this woman, not only is that true, but Jesus has found you. What you're looking for when you step off into sin can only be found in Jesus. You're looking in the wrong places. Those are broken wells. can only be found in Jesus. Well, how do I find Jesus? You don't, but Jesus has found you. Jesus found this woman at this well at noon when no one else was there. No one's supposed to be talking to her. I don't know how you got to the journey this morning. But Jesus has found you. You understand that, right? He has found you. He's confronting you. He's looking at you and saying, I know your story. You're like, nobody knows my story. Jesus says, I know, but I do. Come to me. Yeah, yeah, but. Jesus goes, no, I took care of it. No one is so far from God that they have no hope of a Savior. Jesus says, I'm here. This is what I do. This is, this is why I came. This whole passage is moving toward revealing who Jesus is. You remember her question? Are you greater than our father Jacob? You think Jesus smirked? I don't know. But he's going to lead her to this realization that indeed he is, right? She realizes who he is, and she realizes how he's treated her. He didn't run from her. He didn't diminish her. He didn't dismiss her. He didn't blast to his friends about her story and tell them to move away. He didn't ignore her. He didn't wince and withdraw from her. He knew her. He's the Christ. He's the promised one, and he's having a conversation with her. But he also didn't allow her to get away from her need and her brokenness. Her sin had to be dealt with in order to receive eternal life. It's truth and grace on full display. You see, you will never be saved until you're confronted with the holiness of God. Until you realize you need a Savior. And it's in that moment, realizing who He is, that He's perfect, holy, righteousness, like white, hot righteousness. That when I, as soon as Isaiah gets a glimpse of it, the first thing he says is, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Because not only do we realize his glory, but we realize our filth in the same moment. But then, a staggering move from, from the God of all glory. He doesn't turn from us. When we realize, our, when we realize he's, he's righteous and we realize that we are not, he doesn't turn from us. He doesn't cast us out. Through Jesus, he comes in and he makes a way for us to draw near. Listen, salvation does not come through a tolerant God that says, oh, it's no big deal. Everybody messes up. 
I know you were just broken because of this abuse that happened or because of this. No big deal. Just come on over here. No, no. Salvation doesn't come that way. It's not a you did the best you could. Salvation comes through propitiation, meaning the price had to be paid. Your sin had to be dealt with. But that's the good news. Because Jesus paid it for us. Jesus dealt with us on, dealt with that sin on our behalf. And he's on a mission to save the lost through the giving of his life. So it is the presence of Jesus. The very presence of Jesus. That's the gift that transforms her. It's not a husband that will treat her better. A marriage that will last. It's not a better reputation. It's not a genie in the bottle thing that makes everybody forget everything she's ever done. No, she still has all of that intact when she runs back into town. But guess what she has now? She's got Jesus. And she's like, who cares? Who cares what people think of me? I just met Jesus. Y'all got to meet him too. She's transformed. Jesus is the gift of the gospel. He is the good news. So many of you are playing games with your soul because you think that you've got time. Like her, yeah, I probably need to deal with that, but you know what? One day Jesus will come, the Messiah will come, he'll set all this straight, and then I'll make my decision. That's what she's kind of doing that whole we've got time thing in that moment. You realize that, right? So many of you are like that. One day I'll deal with my sin. One day I'll confess that I'm actually a broken, nasty mess that no one knows about. One day I will. Jesus says, ah, time's here. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. But you know what you got? You got right now. Jesus says, today is the day of salvation. Though your sins be as scarlet, come. I'll make them white as snow. He gives her himself. The realization of who he is and how he's treating her, what he's offering her, leads her to new life. I hope, I hope that today you've been confronted by a holy God. And at the same time, you realize you have no business being in his presence. He owes you nothing except eternal punishment for your sin that cost you your relationship with God and all your relationship with others. That's on you. And yet, and yet, he's saying, I'm here to save you. I see you. I see your brokenness. I see the pain behind the sin. And I'm here to give you living water. Won't you come? receive it and if and if what's rising up in you is yeah but i'd have to be honest about this or yeah but i would jesus already knows can't play games with him but he also isn't pulling away from you he knows your story he knows your secrets and he's not pulling away from you he has come towards you Will you not let yourself be saved, be made whole? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for loving us this way, radically, generously, confrontationally, 
and mercifully. Man, we can never, ever repay you, Jesus. So as we worship, come have your way. Our lives are not our own. I pray that you would take them from us. Heal what is broken. Recover what is lost. Set the captives free. Transform us from self-protective, shame-filled sinners into self-giving, radical and free sinners saved by grace. Have your way in this place, in this time. It's in your name we pray now, Jesus.